Welcome into the NFL on Fox podcast presented by Verizon. I am Dave Hellman. We are officially on to week 11. We've got a loaded show for you today. We're going to check in on the NFC West. We got news and notes from around the league for you. We've got the power rankings as we always do on Tuesday. But first, where else were we going to start? But how do we keep playing the stupidest games possible in prime time in front of the eyes of America? Week 10 concluded with a just a stupid display of football in Orchard Park, New York. The Denver Broncos slipped past the Buffalo Bills by a score of 24 to 22. We'll get to the game itself in a minute, but I just... I took the time to look at this, so I want to make sure we talk about it. If if there's typically three primetime games every week, and I'm not good at math, but that that seems to check out Thursday night, Sunday night, Monday night. We just wrapped up week 10 of the NFL season. Give or take, because I know there's been some doubleheaders this year, but give or take, we've played roughly 30 of these things. By my sub- purely subjective calculations, half of them have been some of the stupidest football imaginable. Think back a few weeks. We had the zany Cowboys Chargers game on a Monday night. The ridiculous DJ Moore explosion. Chicago Bears against Washington on Thursday. The Jacksonville New Orleans game got really goofy on a Thursday night. Pittsburgh, Las Vegas, Josh McDaniels making his wacky, dumb coaching decisions. That's why he's not coaching the Las Vegas Raiders anymore. Some really, really stupid football being played in front of America this season. But the undisputed kings of dumb football, it's not in question anymore if it ever was. The Buffalo Bills have played five of these things. Monday night football, they go down to the Denver Broncos. It's their fifth primetime game. I would argue they've each one's been stupider than the last. Go back to week one. They lose in overtime to the New York Jets to open the season the night that Aaron Rodgers gets hurt. We'll talk about that. Don't forget that disgusting walk-off win against the New York Giants where there were two penalties in a row. Is it a penalty? Is it not a penalty? Who cares? Let's get the hell out of here. How about the narrowly missed Hail Mary against Tampa Bay just a couple weeks ago? It's, It's been an insane season for the Buffalo Bills. And they might have topped them all in week 10, falling to five and five against Denver. If you missed it, let's just get to the crux of the issue, which was the last two minutes of this game. Five combined turnovers in the game, four of them by the Bills. But outside of just turnovers, there were five total fumbles. If you count every time a ball carrier in this game lost track of it, five guys put the ball on the deck in this game, just a stupid sequence of events. But the memorable part will be the final two minutes. Josh Allen, despite a very forgettable night, his lowest passer rating of the season, 59.3, looks like he's going to play the hero. He rushes for a touchdown that puts the Bills ahead, 22-21 to late. They had the lead because the Broncos scored and bobbled the extra point in the most embarrassing way imaginable. I I need to emphasize one more time, just a dumb, dumb game of football. But anyway, Denver gets the ball. They drive to midfield with under a minute to play. Game looks all but over. Second and four. You love how this works. Troy Aikman says, you can't take a sack here. Well, Buffalo Bills cave in the Broncos offensive line. They sack Russell Wilson. They push Denver out of field goal range. It's all looks pretty hopeless with 
just over 30 seconds to play in the game. Instead, Broncos get aggressive. They go for the the kill shot, probably because the Bills run a zero blitz, which having pushed the Broncos out of field goal range seems like an interesting call by Sean McDermott, but that's what they do. Classic situation of a bad throw being rewarded. It's an underthrow, but the Broncos draw defensive pass interference. They move into field goal range. Seems like a, 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 a dumb ending to a dumb game, but that was just the beginning because what proceeds to happen next is the Broncos kneeling out the clock to make the Bills use their timeouts. I get all of that. I get you don't want to give Josh Allen any time to go down and get a game-winning field goal of his own. He's one of the guys that can do that. But faced with less than 20 seconds to play and nobody having any timeouts, the Broncos opt to kneel it again and try a quick change field goal. So it's it's a damn fire drill as the clock's running out. Will Lutz runs on. Time's ticking down. Nobody can stop the clock. Absolutely crazy decision to rush this whole process. Will Lutz misses the field goal. And it looks like the Bills are about to win the game when flag too many men on the field, 12 guys on the field, on the quick change field goal. The only people who bungled it worse than the Broncos were the guys trying to keep them from winning the game. You know how this goes when you give somebody another shot. Will Lutz drills the game winner. Just like that, the Denver Broncos have won three games in a row and the Buffalo Bills are in the, they're in the NFL wilderness. They're not even, I mean, forget the AFC East, which they've run for the last few years. They are currently well out of the wild card picture. A lot of football left to play, but how convincing can you sound when you talk about the Bills in that, in no, in those terms? Nine turnovers in their last four games, 18 on the year, tied for second worst in the league. Josh Allen, somehow both things can be true. Plenty of people have talked about him as an MVP candidate. He's tied for the league lead in touchdown passes. He is also leading the league in interceptions. He's now at 11 after throwing two to Denver. At this point, I think you say this is who Josh Allen is. He's a transcendent talent who has entirely too much of a penchant for turning the ball over. It's, I mean, it it ain't a new thing. I think people will try to tell you that it is. It's just that the good typically far outweighs the bad, but you fall to five and five and an inability to hold on to the football is the biggest reason why it's a talking point. It should be a talking point, a befuddling, not, not a bad season for Josh Allen. He has had stretches of really amazing play. Maybe if we could just get the bills out of prime time, it would fix all their problems. They've been much cleaner when fewer people have been watching, but they've got to find a way to do something about it. Josh Allen said after the game, it's no secret. The clock's ticking. He's absolutely right. The Bills still have games against Philadelphia, Kansas City, Dallas. They've got another game against Miami at the end of the year. The schedule does not let up. And it's not like I want to write them off in the sense I still think they're a talented football team, but you do things like turn the ball over four times. You're not going to beat anybody, let alone the best teams in the league. Shout out to the Broncos. It's always going to be Bills-centric when you have a meltdown like this, a team that's competed for the conference as often as the Bills have over the last few years. But it is a hell of a turnaround for Denver where they were in September. All the things we've said about them, giving up 70 points to the Dolphins, et cetera, et cetera, to win three games in a row 
even if they are technically still in last place in their division, a much more viable team under Sean Payton than anybody thought they would be a month ago. Shout out Cortland Sutton. I guess that's it's probably the one other thing worth mentioning from this game is his tippy-toe touch touchdown that looked like it happened about a yard out of bounds in the first half of the game. But yeah, Broncos alive and well. I'm not sure how much this silliness changes my opinion of them. I think I need to see a little bit more, but just a, a goofy, goofy game in Western New York. The Broncos come out on top of it. And now the the big story is we wait to see, can the Bills rebound? I, I don't think anybody wants to be the person that writes them off with almost half the season still to play, but it's hard to feel confident when you've seen some of these performances that they have continually put up in 2023. Let's keep it in the AFC East as we keep the show rolling. Actually, let's focus on the Buffalo Bills next opponent, their division rivals, the New York Jets. Jets haven't been playing a dumb brand of football necessarily, just bad. We didn't talk about their game against the Las Vegas Raiders on Monday's show, but if you didn't see Sunday night football, a wacky, zany, dumb game in its own right, but another Jets game without a touchdown. If you're keeping track at home, the Jets have now lost two in a row. They did squeak past the New York Giants in a game that they had no business winning. The Giants should have been able to hold on at the end of that game. Even still, they've lost two in a row. They've gone 11 quarters without scoring a touchdown. If you want to take the math one step further, New York Jets have gone 36 straight possessions without a touchdown. They've only scored more than 20 points twice this season. So that's where things sit with the New York Jets. And spicing all of that up, we I apologize. We didn't get to this Monday. There's plenty of time to talk about it on a Tuesday. Word coming out during the loss to the Raiders, Aaron Rodgers told Melissa Stark that he is eyeing a mid-December return from his Achilles injury, which I'm still processing after hearing it on Sunday, to be honest with you. Let's start with the obvious. I am not a doctor. But Rodgers' proposed timeline for return is a full two months faster than any Achilles recovery that I've ever been familiar with covering the NFL. A couple years ago, running back Cam Akers did it in five and a half months, the year the Rams won the Super Bowl, hurt his Achilles over the summer and was back for the playoff run. So still missed the entire regular season, five and a half, six months. That even felt amazing. So what you're telling me now is that Rodgers could be back a full two months faster than what Akers did a couple of years ago. I know the guy is into some, I'll call it alternative medicine, but that's still a tough thing to wrap my brain around. Having said all of that, I will push it all to the side. Let's assume that he's right and it can happen. Because I will say, a guy with four MVPs, some of the things he said about, oh, doubt me and watch what happens. I'm going to give him a little bit of respect just because of what he's accomplished in the game of football. I'll play ball. It's hard for me to believe, but I'll just say he's right in this instance. Let's just say that he is and he could be back in another few weeks. Where will the New York Jets be in mid-December? And that's what we wanted to take a look at here in the NFL on Fox podcast. Not exactly a forgiving slate coming up for the Jets. We just talked about it. They play Buffalo next. Following the Bills, they've got the Miami Dolphins. 
the Atlanta Falcons after that, followed by the Houston Texans. It is three home games in four. That's nice. But it's also three games against top scoring offenses. And what don't the Jets do? Score points. Almost three games without a touchdown. Struggling to ever score more than 20 points in a game. They're actually 30th in the league in scoring offense so far this year. If Rodgers said mid-December, I'll take him at his word, I'm going to say December 17th. That would be a, it would be a road trip for the Jets. It would be their second game against the Dolphins. So where are they after these next four games? Bills, Dolphins, Falcons, Texans. If this is possible, would the Jets be even be in the conversation at this point? It's easy to imagine them not winning another game. It's easy to picture them being four and nine by the time mid-December rolls around or in a good scenario, five and eight. Maybe division games are weird. Maybe you steal a division game. Maybe you can beat the Falcons. Five and eight? Is Aaron Rodgers going to step in with four games to play and will them to a winning record over the final month of the season? I know they played well against the Raiders, but would the Jets offensive line even allow him to do that? Let's not pretend like it's all been great aside from Zach Wilson. Clearly, quarterback is the primary issue in New York, but... I worry for a 40-year-old guy coming off of an Achilles that he just tore in September playing behind an offensive line as suspect as the Jets has been. Yeah, I'll be honest. It sounds like a recipe for disaster. Aaron, I don't want to doubt you, but I guess what I'm saying is, yeah, nothing about this sounds like a great idea, my guy. Maybe reconsider. It sounds like you're recommitted to the team for next season. We can roll all this back and try again when you've had much longer to come back from it. Maybe I'll wind up eating these words, but man, it is just a tough thing to wrap my head around. And even if it's possible that Rodgers can do it, would there still be a season worth salvaging for the New York Jets? Maybe let's let's consider this. What sounds more realistic to me than this moonshot of an idea, why don't the Jets just do a little bit more to acquire help at quarterback? They do have Trevor Simeon. I don't know if it would go a whole lot better, but it is interesting. He's been on the team for a while now and hasn't gotten so much of a crack. And I do know Zach Wilson had that uptick in play. We talked about it. It was impressive. He played well in a loss to the Chiefs. He helped the Jets beat the Eagles. That was a month ago at this point. And we are now three games in to a horrible stretch of offense. It makes you wonder why the Jets sat on this so long. General Manager Joe Douglas, Head Coach Robert Sala, I know you committed a lot of resources to Aaron Rodgers. I'm sure you didn't want to turn around and do something desperate. But maybe, maybe you should have given it a go. It's awfully interesting here right after the trade deadline. It's been two weeks. Minnesota Vikings sent some day three resources to the Arizona Cardinals, and Josh Dobbs has them the talk of the league. If you have Josh Dobbs, A, first of all, Josh Dobbs is going to have a chance to get Minnesota into the playoffs. But on top of that, even if you've got a Josh Dobbs holding the fort and in some harebrained universe where Aaron Rodgers can come back for the last two or three weeks of the season, that sounds a hell of a lot more believable than expecting Zach Wilson to hold the fort for another month until Rodgers can come back when Wilson hasn't been holding the fort to begin with for the last month or so. It feels like a missed opportunity. We can say hindsight's 2020, but everybody I know that watches, covers, talks about the NFL figured the Jets probably need to do something at quarterback 
as soon as Rodgers went down, which again was all the way back in week one, they had plenty of time to see this coming. They opted to do nothing about it. And now we're sitting here saying maybe if the 40 year old quarterback can come back from an Achilles injury in three months, maybe we'll have a shot at a miracle run. I can't completely rule it out because Aaron Rodgers, for all of his quirks, is one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time. Sure as hell doesn't sound realistic to me. And even if it were to happen, doesn't sound like it would be the best idea, in my opinion. But always something with Aaron Rodgers and the New York Jets. Something to keep an eye on moving toward December. A few other headlines to hit moving into week 11, starting with Deshaun Watson's injury status. That's been a trend in 2023. Coming off of, I would say, his best win as a Cleveland Brown, Deshaun Watson undergoing an MRI on his left ankle. He injured it in the first half of the win against Baltimore. He said after the game, it's not going to bother him. He expects to play. And let's be clear, NFL players can get MRIs very easily. It's not quite the same thing. The amount of resources they put into this, guys get MRIs for minor things all the time, but it is always noteworthy when a franchise quarterback, $230 million quarterback is getting an MRI. It's a big matchup. Browns have the Steelers this weekend. Again, the the deepest, toughest division in the NFL. Watson has been limited by various injuries over the course of the season. So even if he can play, maybe won't be at hundred percent. That is something that we will have our eye on as we move on into the week elsewhere, no game for the new Orleans saints. So that is at least a silver lining as they head into their bye week, but man, they need the time off. Derek Carr being evaluated a for a concussion B for re-aggravating the shoulder injury that he had a few weeks back. AC sprain in his shoulder. Sounds like Derek Carr is going to be okay in the long run. Maybe he would sit out if they had a game this week, but they do not. The problem for the Saints is he's it's not just him. Star cornerback Marshawn Lattimore and star wide receiver Michael Thomas both sustained injuries that are feared to be pretty significant. Sounds like a high ankle sprain for Lattimore. That's typically four to six weeks, which maybe not season ending, but start doing the math. There's not that many weeks left in the season. Thomas, no timeline yet, but it's a knee injury. That's, I mean, one of the best cornerbacks in the NFL and Thomas all obviously having a little bit of a resurgence after a couple injury plagued years. Saints still on top of the NFC South. And like I said, they've got the week off, so maybe not time to panic, but sitting at 500, probably like as many hands on deck to help you finish this thing off. When they're done with the bye, they get their longtime rivals, the Atlanta Falcons, who let's move on to that one. Falcons having quarterback injury problems of their own. Taylor Heineke suffered a hamstring injury in the Falcons' loss to Arizona. Atlanta also on a bye. Saints and Falcons both getting some time off before they play over Thanksgiving weekend. That sounds like a heck of a lot of fun. Could be interesting to watch. I'm not sure who the better option is at quarterback for the Atlanta Falcons. Typically, when you have two, you have none. Taylor Heineke, Desmond Ritter, both with, I would say, more downs than ups. I don't know. We'll see what Arthur Smith does there after the Falcons get back from their time off. Good news on the injury front, though. One of the most exciting players in the league. Sounds like he's heading back to the roster. Miami running back Devon Achan to return from IR. He's been out for a month. I think this has the potential to be one of the sneaky biggest storylines that will affect the AFC playoff picture down the home stretch. Dolphins offense is already the best in the league, one of the best in the league, but 
Achan's game-breaking ability took them to a level that was hard to believe during that stretch where he really broke out as an offensive rookie of the year candidate. They were averaging 238 rushing yards per game. He goes on IR. They still had their moments, but they're down to 100 yards a game over the last month of the season without him. They're good regardless, but you add a guy with that type of game-breaking ability, they just go to a completely different level. Having him back for the last six, seven weeks of the season, I think it's going to be a really big deal. Welcome back, Devon. Finishing up in Chicago, where the Bears say they need more time to evaluate Justin Fields. Yeah, you and me both, Bears. That's the story of the season. Haven't been able to watch him for the last month of the season thanks to that thumb injury. Desperately hoping this is the week that he comes back against the Detroit Lions. The Bears are more fun to watch with Fields. No offense to Tyson Bajan. But that is, it's one of the dominant storylines in the NFL, in my opinion, at least among things that probably won't affect the playoff race. Sorry, Bears fans. It's just the truth. But when you think about the ramifications here, Bears have two major first round picks. Could be as high as number one in the draft order, thanks to owning Carolina's pick. How Fields plays is going to determine what might happen with one or two of the biggest draft picks in next year's draft. It's just, it's a huge story. Not writing Fields off yet. He needs to play, but over the course of seven weeks, maybe he does enough to win over Ryan Poles and the decision makers in Chicago. Maybe he does enough to affect his trade value if the Bears do decide to move on from him. Maybe they can ship him somewhere else for a fresh start. There's so many interesting ways this can go, but Fields needs to be playing for any of it to pick up and gain some steam. So hopefully for Fields, hopefully for the Bears, hopefully for football fans, he's back and ready to go for week 11. All right, up next, I wanted to take the time at the start of the week to check in on a division. And what division had a better week 10 than the NFC West? Yes, it's true. The only division in the league that went unbeaten over the weekend, Niners, Seahawks, Cardinals, all got wins and the Rams were off. 3-0 still counts as unbeaten. Wanted to dive into what's going on out West, so I'm joined now by my good buddy, Eric Williams. He is our NFC West writer at foxsports.com. Eric, it's not every week that the last place team in the division takes top billing. It's also not every week that a team gets a franchise quarterback back from injury in the middle of the season either. That was exactly the case in Arizona. Kyler Murray returns from injury. They defeat the Atlanta Falcons. Eric, you were on hand out in Arizona. Just curious, what was your impression of how Kyler Murray handled that moment, handled the game in his first action back in almost a year since that injury? Yeah, I think the first thing that really struck me in watching him both when he warmed up in pregame and then during the game was there was no hesitation in terms of, you know, whether he was going to, you know, hit it in terms of his speed or, or, or run with the football or scramble. Um, he looked like he was fully healthy. And I think if you're the Cardinals, that's kind of the number one thing that, that you're you're concerned about you know, coming off an ACL. You know, usually it takes a couple years for guys to, to fully you know, come back and kind of be themselves. Uh, but Kyler looked like Kyler. You know, he was explosive. Um, he wasn't hesitant in terms of running the football, got hit several times, actually made a tackle on the interception that he threw um, and and looked like he had juice, you know, uh, you know, coming off that ACL knee injury. So that was the first thing that struck me is, is Kyler is physically healthy. We'll see how he comes through, you know, this, this following week, you know, if there's any kind of, 
you know, effects that he has from the game uh, now that he's played. Um, but physically, looked like Kyler, still throws a, a beautiful football, still naturally accurate football. I think he completed 60% of his passes. You know, statistically, it wasn't a great performance, you know. Um, like I said, completed 60% of his passes. I think he threw for 250 yards, no touchdowns, threw interception, did run for a score. Um, but really what he did at the end of the game, that's kind of what Kyler is known for. Kind of put his team on the back. That amazing scramble on third and 10 where he ran 60 yards to get, you know, 19 in order to keep the chains moving. And then two plays after that uh, made a, a big throw to tight end Trey McBride, who's emerging as a playmaker in that offense to set up the winning field goal. Um, so, you know, the fact that he was able to lead the team to a victory in his first action in, in 11 months, um, you have to like that if you're a Cardinals fan. Uh, that's, uh, look, we all know what Kyler can do, but for him to do both of the things that he's famous for on that, you know, final drive to get the win in his first game back, I mean, what a story to have that scramble, to be able to hit that moonshot ball to Trey McBride. What And I, I know... Look, I, I know it's one week, and I, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but it's such an interesting spot that Arizona is in with a young team, a new coaching staff, and now you bring this accomplished franchise quarterback back into the mix. I don't know that anybody knows what the long-term future is, but what do you think the Cardinals' goal is right now with Kyler Murray back? You know, for... The joke for so long was they're tanking for a top pick, but all of mm -hmm. a sudden that I don't know that you can make that case so easily with Kyler Murray playing like that. So where do you see this going over the next, at least the next month or so? Yeah, I think it's an eight game evaluation to kind of see how he fits in their offense, see how he fits their scheme, their culture and what they're trying to build there in Arizona with a new head coach and Jonathan Gannon and a new general manager and Monty Austin for it. So really it's, it's, it's an eight week audition for Kyler they're going to win games because, you know, Kyler, if he plays like he did last week, um, they're not, you know, they're not going to get the number one overall pick. They're going to, they're going to move down a little bit, which I think if you're the Cardinals, um, you still have Houston's pick as well. You have enough ammunition to move up if you really want a quarterback and your plan is to move on from Kyler after, after this season. So I think they have, you know, all options at their disposal. Um, I think you, you want Kyler to, to, to play well. Um, you know, it gives you an opportunity again for other teams to to get in the mix, you know, if, if they see him as an asset. Um, but the other thing is, is it was cool to see Kyler and Drew Petsing's system, you know, which is more of a West Coast system and not in the air raid. You know, he actually took 10 snaps under center. There was more diversity in their scheme, uh, which was which was cool to see They they actually ran him on a sprint option play out of the shotgun. They had him on some half rolls. He ran a bootleg and naked. Uh, so for a guy that has that kind of just natural athletic ability to see him in a scheme where they're trying to scheme things open for him and not just saying we're going to run five wide and, and Kyler go be Kyler, um, I thought was pretty cool. And I want to kind of see that moving forward and, and see how he kind of gets more involved in the offense. The one thing that, you know, was a little concerning is the pre-snap penalties, which has been an issue for Kyler since he's been in the league, you know, having to take timeouts, delay games, you know, false starts. Those uh, stalled a couple drives that maybe could have been touchdowns or they had to settle for field goals. So we'll see if he's able to kind of clean that up uh, next week against, I believe, Houston, Texas. 
One last one on that. And yeah, we'll, we'll see where it goes, but I am curious and I don't want to, I certainly don't want to dog Josh Dobbs, who I thought he was phenomenal in a tough situation down there in Arizona. But you being there for this win against Atlanta, what was what was the energy like? Did you get a sense for how it felt for this team to have a guy like Kyler Murray back who is capable of of putting you put the, putting the team on his back down the stretch of a game like that? Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you brought that up, Dave, because Trey McBride talked about that, that there was just a different juice, a different energy with their franchise quarterback back in the fold. I mean, Kyler is, he's a dude now. <laughs> he's a type A personality. And when you get a guy like that back on the field that will do anything to win a football game, that's going to rub off on the rest of, of the team. And clearly when you talk to, to other players inside that locker room, that's kind of what they talked about, that they were just kind of feeding off of, the energy that he brought to the field. And now guys that maybe didn't make plays for Dobbs are now making plays and getting open for Kyler because they want to do their best because they know how much he means to that organization. So yeah, there definitely was a different energy and you could kind of feel that not only from the players, but from the fans and in the building. Can't wait to see where it goes. I, I don't remember being this interested in a two and eight team at this point in a season before. <laughs> Can't wait to see what's going to happen next with Kyler Murray, Kyler Murray and the Cardinals. Meanwhile, on the other side of the country, the San Francisco 49ers seem like they have quieted a lot of concerns. Just one of those complete wins, 34 to three against Jacksonville. I'm curious from, from your perspective. I mean, it was good all over the place, but between the offense getting back on track or the defense looking dominant for the first time in a while, what do you think is the bigger development for the Niners in that win? I think it's the offense. I think Purdy needed to kind of uh, reestablish himself, uh, get back some of that confidence that he had early in the year. Uh, you know, he goes in there and plays efficient football. Uh, you know, the, the the touchdown that he threw where he threw the ball back over the middle you're kind of going, mm, I don't know if that's the greatest decision, even though it worked. Uh, those were, were kind of the decisions that we talked about that he he made earlier in the, in the year that he kind of got away with. But other than that, I, I thought that he, he he made great decisions, got the football where he needed to go, um, and, and really helped kind of lead that offense. Obviously, it helps to get Trent uh, Williams back and to get Debo back. And you get two kind of foundational players and put them back in that offense. Uh, the offense looks much different. And, and, and we saw that the defense, no doubt, you know, having Chase Young help that defensive line and they end up with five sacks. Trevor Lawrence is kind of running for his life a little bit Four turnovers. Uh, so the defense looked re-energized, reinvigorated from that bye week, which I think was kind of maybe more more of an issue than, than, they, than they talked about, uh, you know, in terms of their struggles defensively. It, you know, Jenna had mentioned it uh, going into the bye week that he felt like the defense looked tired. And certainly they didn't look tired against the Jaguars, you know, after a week of rest uh, and just kind of got back to playing that dominating style of football that we saw from them when they they went, to, went on a 5-0 run to start the year. I want to make sure, I mean, you just touched on it, but I just think it's so funny and it perfectly encapsulates Brock Purdy's career is Sunday was his best quarterback rating of the season, 148. <laughs> Yeah. It's about as close to perfect as you can expect a guy to be. And in the same game, he throws a touchdown that Kyle Shanahan called the worst decision he's made since he got here. I mean, if that doesn't sum up this story with this kid, I'm not sure what does. 
it, it was funny to hear Kyle say that because, yeah, it was an awful decision. I mean, that's laid over the middle is kind of like, you know, one-on-one of what you don't do as a quarterback. But the fact that he's able to joke about it kind of tells you everything you need to know about how Kyle feels about Brock Purdy and his ability to lead that team. Yeah, it was an awful decision, but he knows that Brock is the guy and made a bunch of great decisions after that. And, you know, Brock will hopefully learn from that and will not be, I don't want to say reckless, but we'll just make a better decision in that, in that, um, in that situation where he clearly could have just, you know, ran for it, maybe would have ran for a touchdown, but would have put him, uh, his team maybe in a better situation where, you know, they score the touchdown, but, but it was a, it was a turnover worthy play that worked out well for him. I said this on the show yesterday. It felt, it feels like maybe there's some pushback on people shrugging off three straight losses by the Niners, but this is why. This is why you shrug that off because at the end of the day, they still had the potential to do this. They look just as dangerous as they ever did. Eric, I want to get one last one for you. I do want to touch on the Seattle Seahawks before we get you out of here. Mm-hmm. I'm curious where a couple, I mean, two huge tests coming up very soon. Both of the 49ers games are on the horizon. Seahawks have won three out of four. I wouldn't call the three wins particularly impressive, and and the loss was obviously a very bad one in Baltimore. Where do you where do you think things stand with the Seahawks right now in terms of how much they're living up to what their potential is? Yeah, they're kind of just grinding out these these victories. This was a team where you thought the offense was going to lead them because of how Geno played, and you have DK Metcalf and and Lockett and, and, and Walker, all those playmakers that they have on offense, they add Jackson, Smith, and Njigba. But the offense just hasn't got, uh, you know, going like they thought it would early in the year. Obviously, Geno's been part of that. He's turned the ball over a little bit, uh, did a better job of taking care of the football uh, against the commanders, did a nice job of leading them to, uh, you know, a winning field goal so that they were able to get that victory and made some some big boy throws to DK in order to get the ball down there. Um, but when they play the Niners, they're going to have to be clicking on all cylinders offensively to have a chance to even stay in the game against a team like that. Defense has played better, you know, and and, and tackled better, played better against the run. Uh, but like you said, um, the Niners and Seahawks play a couple weeks on Thanksgiving Day, and we'll really see kind of where the Seahawks are at because they got swept by the Niners last year. They made a bunch of moves in the offseason trying to, to get to where the Niners are, and that'll be the first opportunity to really see uh, if they've done that. Underrated note that I saw today, it sounds like right tackle Abraham Lucas is expected back at practice. So even if he doesn't play this week, I think that could go a long way toward maybe cleaning things up for the Seahawks on offense. Eric, always interesting. It's I mean, from top to bottom, we got something to watch with every team in the division here. Obviously, the Niners and the Seahawks, but we'll see that where things stand with Kyler Murray and, and Matthew Stafford and his thumb as well. I can't wait to see what happens in the NFC West over the second half. Yeah, no doubt. Like you said, Stafford coming back from the thumb. They signed Carson Wentz. You know, see if he, maybe potentially he gets on the field at the end of the year. A lot of storylines to follow in the NFC West and uh, just, you know, waiting to, to see what happens each week. Looking forward to talking about it. Looking forward to talking with you about it. As always, thank you so much for the time, my friend. No problem. Thanks for having me. All right, we're coming to the end of the show. You know what that means. It's time for the power rankings. As we move forward into week 11, we take a look at the week that was. It's everybody's favorite. 
It's my least favorite. Every week it feels like it gets harder. I don't know how to stack it all up. Somebody beat somebody else earlier in the season. Somebody just scored a big win. It's a jumble, but we'll try to make the best of it. Let's take a look at how the 32 teams in the league stack up. Let's start. We'll start somewhat down the board because I feel like the top and the bottom look a little static. Maybe we're seeing some separation there, but we'll start close-ish to the bottom, not all the way, but number 23, I want to I want to admonish the Atlanta Falcons for a second. Just just a brutal turn of events here over the last few weeks. This was a team that looked like it had the NFC South in the palm of its hand not even a month ago. And I know they're still in it. We'll see what happens after the bye week, but three straight losses to a rookie quarterback in Will Levis, a guy who just got to town in Josh Dobbs, and a quarterback who admittedly Kyler Murray is very good, but 11 months removed from tearing his ACL, 10 months removed, first game back from a major injury. And oh, by the way, the Cardinals had the worst record in the league. That is a brutal losing streak and not one that's easy to weather if you have plans to make the playoffs. I said it earlier in the show. We'll see what Arthur Smith decides to do between Taylor Heineke and Desmond Ritter. Either way, the answer's not super inspiring. And that's disappointing because it feels like the Falcons are a quarterback away from being pretty damn good. I think people are dunking on them for not going after Lamar Jackson. You can do that. You can even just point out, hey, maybe somebody like Washington took the time and effort to sign Jacoby Brissett. He's not doing anything. Maybe the Falcons should have tried a little bit harder at the quarterback spot instead of just saying, this this guy that's barely played and this guy that's had severe ups and downs in his career, this is all good enough. doesn't feel good enough right now. The NFC South is not a great division, so it's definitely not over, but it seems like the Falcons are disappointing relative to expectations. All right, let's jump up to the middle of the pack. The Buffalo Bills down three this week. How could they not be? They, again, we covered the whole thing at the top of the show. They lose to the Broncos in embarrassing fashion. They've lost three out of four. And I would just like to remind you, if Chris Godwin of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers turns around in time to see a Hail Mary in the lights, could be talking about a four-game losing streak. I know it didn't happen, but man, it really could have. And what a calamity we would have on our hands then. Nine turnovers in the last four games. Just clean it up, Bills. I don't think they're bad and I'm not writing them off. Just clean it up. It's, it shouldn't be that hard. All right. I, it, it's frustrating. I don't want to talk about it at number 12. I knocked them down five. I feel bad about it. The Cincinnati Bengals. I just think we grade these teams on a curve, right? And the Bengals fell so far down because of the way that they started out the season. Everybody gets healthy. Joe Burrow's looking good. They're looking like their old selves. They climb up into the top 10. Maybe there's no, there's no shame in losing to the Houston Texans, but the way they lose a playing much less clean than what we're used to. They've been one of the better teams at avoiding turnovers this year. Joe Burrow throws two picks. That is not his game at all. Very uncharacteristic day from him. Then the Texans allow the Bengals back into the game. Bengals are a fantastic team at closing. That's been a hallmark of their organization since Burrow got there. Looks like the Texans are going to let them back in and, and we're at least going to get overtime out of this thing. And I know CJ Stroud's great, but Lou Anarumo, this fantastic Bengals defense 
find a way to get a stop. The, the ease with which they get down the field, docking them five spots might feel harsh, but maybe it's a correction for how quickly I jumped them all the way back up to number seven. Maybe they should have been at number 10 anyway. So 12 feels right. They're, they're five and four. The season's not lost, although <laughs> once again, they are in last place in their division. So plenty for them to work on. I feel bad about the number that says they've fallen five spots, but 12 feels about right for what they've accomplished so far this season. Number nine, another team that plummeted, and I don't feel bad about this. My boys in Jacksonville, I've got, I've got something invested here. I picked the Jags to be the one seed in the AFC. That suddenly looks like a very bad prediction. Even if they win the AFC South, it's one thing to to fall short. You know, we actually, we said the same thing about the Cowboys against the 49ers five, six weeks ago. It's one thing to fall short. You lose to the Niners, big deal. Somebody's got to lose. And the Niners are one of the best teams in the league. But to just no show in every way imaginable, three points on offense, completely steamrolled on defense, no positives to glean from the entire thing. Other than that, you didn't get shut out. It just... There's no way to not say that they didn't measure up. Maybe it sounds harsh to call them frauds. They still lead their division, but you'd like to see a better showing in a measuring stick opportunity. Just a rough, rough week for the Jags. Not feeling great about that prediction. We'll see how it continues to age. Up two more spots at number seven. Up three this week, the Cleveland Browns. I don't know if there's a team with a better trio of wins this season than Cleveland. They beat Cincy. They beat the 49ers, knocked them off their perch. And now they've got a win against the Ravens who were rolling over everybody, looked unbeatable at times. They come back from a 14-point deficit in the fourth quarter. Sean Watson's best game as a Brown still wasn't all that great. That's the interesting thing from an offensive perspective. The Browns can still be a lot better on that side of the ball, but... If the offense is at least passable and the defense is doing its thing, yeah, the Browns are a top 10 team. I said it after the Sunday round of games. I think people are still sleeping on what their potential could be. So a big, big win over Baltimore has them firmly inside the top 10. We'll wrap it up. Back in the top five, up three spots from last week. I was never worried about the Niners. I do feel good about that. Even if they beat up on my poor, poor Jags, Niners looked exactly as dominant as they did the first five weeks. I don't know. I don't know what happened with the losing streak, especially on the defensive side of the ball, but who cares? They're back. Offense is rolling. Chase Young added to an already stacked defense. It looked exactly as good as it was supposed to. I think the Niners are firmly a Super Bowl contender. I thought that when they were losing games, they're back, baby. Anybody that doubted them, that was for you. One last little tidbit about my power rankings. If you'll notice, the top two teams, the Eagles and the Chiefs, they just so happen to play each other this week. So sure, we'll have a fun little shakeup at the top next time around. That does it for the show today, though. We will catch you all next time. Please go find us on Spotify. Go subscribe on Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on YouTube. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. Really, wherever you get your NFL content, wherever you get your podcasts, you can find us there. We appreciate the support so much. We will be back with plenty more as we dive into week 11. I'll catch you all then.